0: Rodriguez goes, and a fly ball into right, down the line, gone. Two nothing, New York. To the second baseman, Cano. The Yankees are back on top. World champions for the 27th time. Yankees and will all rise for the national anthem of the world. Get
1: New York to the heart, but got love for
2: all. Line die in the fire where I learn the ball. Uptown is the place where I lay my dough.
0: On the streets of the Bronx where my family roam. Hold oh, damn it, we ho. Peter got a... Player haters can feel the flame for my heater. Know... Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Bronx Machachos Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and we have Enrique, Danny, What's up, everyone? Dave with everyone today. Unfortunately, Alex is not able to make it today, so we will miss him dearly. Everyone, please remember to like us on iTunes and listen to us on wherever you get your podcasts available. I want to wish everyone a happy Roderick Arias Day today, as we're recording in the morning of the International Signing Day. For those who don't know about International Signing Day, this is a day that players from Latin America, Europe, Asia, and any other non-U.S., Puerto Rico, or Canadian areas can sign can officially sign with a team from the age 16 to 25 years old for a certain allot, allotment of money that that is designated for each team. The Yankees have 5.1 million dollars allocated to them this year. Spending majority of this, which we found out today, was 3.5 million on the international on the number one international prospect, Roderick Arias. And here to talk with us about Arias is, and other short shortstop prospects in our system is none other than Eli Fishman. Eli, thank you for joining us today.
2: Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on. and I'm looking forward to it.
0: I appreciate that. man. I appreciate that. Can you, for everyone who's living under a rock for the past few years, can you tell us how you first got into prospects and how you got into the, into the, into the broadcasting type business?
2: Well, as, as we were just talking about, I started at 11 years old. I went to the local Scene Hall University, which is right down the street from me in Jersey. And they've got a a very good Division One baseball team. And how I got my start was there. I would write up scouting reports and interview all the players for. I created a YouTube channel and filmed all the games, um, and wrote up you know articles and posted them on a little Google website I made. And you know from there, there for a few years, and then started going to minor league baseball games and you know writing for a couple of websites, posting a lot of interviews on my YouTube channel with players. That's you know, my biggest passion is getting to, getting to interview the players. Um, So posted those and just, you know, really found a love for minor league baseball. Um, I'm the biggest minor league baseball, how all this comes is I'm the biggest minor league baseball nerd in the world basically. Like it just, I don't know what it is about it and just the access to it, but like I can name every team and I can name a player at every single team of all, you know, 150 minor league baseball affiliates and, I could probably name 250 players in the Yankees organization. So, just being a very big nerd and and um, you know, loving it so much has has allowed me to get insights and um be able to share those and hopefully work my way up in the sports journalism world.
0: Oh, wow, that's perfect, man. Don't and don't let anybody tell you you're a nerd. You're just like the rest <laughs> of us. You're just a baseball junkie, my friend. That's all it is. But here's a so today is the international signing day. And if can you tell us in your experience in, in the past, you know, say five to 10 years, how how the international scouting has changed.
2: Yeah. So international scouting has changed greatly, mainly in the way of showcases, you know, the signing process has been um, the same for a while and it's probably going to change for the first time ever um, with the new CBA that's coming up, which which you know, I'll, I'm sure we'll get into, and and I'll say I think there does need to be a some kind of international draft or something to prevent. You know, we're all obviously Yankee fans, but is it really fair that the Yankees get the number one player in the class every single year? No, it's not. Um, <laughs> You're talking though, to the old guy right here. I say yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> even though, even though you do, you do love to see it. Um, the the process can be a little bit unfair in terms of teams getting the top prospects and the prospects getting to choose themselves. So obviously guys are willing to take a pay cut or whatever it may be to go to the Yankees. So I do think there does need to be some kind of international draft, you know, the limited spending now, it hasn't always been this way with the limited spending um, is definitely good that they've done it. So they have, you know, teams uh, allocate that specific amount of money based on you know, how their record was in previous years. So, you know, the Yankees don't have as much money as other teams, but they still got the number one guy in in Arias. But um going back to the international scouting, you know, it used to be a little bit like scouts going to find guys in cornfields and the old stories you hear about, you know, going to going to the you know, the sand lots and, and finding these guys like Mariano Rivera who was throwing bottle caps and those kind of stories. But now it's really turned into an international thing where you have the best players from Cuba playing the best players in the D playing the best players from the DR. And you know, the players from Puerto Rico come over to the US and play against top prospects here. So that process has changed where you're seeing guys definitely have more eyes on them. You have the video department of it too, where where scouts and, and fans have video of jason Dominguez and roger Arias when they sign opposed to that's obviously not how it was five ten years ago you saw a guy's name pop up you knew nothing about him but now these guys when they're 16 years old, 16 years old as we've seen they can be a little bit of celebrities when they sign so that's how the process has definitely changed
0: and to, to piggyback off that especially you were saying about the the possible draft coming up and i've heard that i've heard that about that for a few years now, that the owners are really going to push for that in this new CBA, and the first pr- proposal that this that the owners gave to the to the players was that they wanted to have a CBA a international draft in there. Is that to cut out, say, the, all the buscones down in in the Venezuela and the in the DR? How it kind of it's it's very much like a wild wild west atmosphere down there.
2: Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's really the age when the teams are jumping on these kids. You know, Roderick Arias has been you know, committed, like verbally signed to the Yankees since he was like 13, 14 years old. Same thing with Jason and and all these guys. And it is really not how it should be having 13, 14 year olds committing to play for the New York Yankees. Um, It should be more of an open process. And there should be something to not allow teams to go get these kids when they're that young and being able to you know, give them this amount of money and say, hey, in two years, we'll give you a lot of money. So why don't you sign with us? Um, that shouldn't be the process when these kids are that young and then they go into the academies, drop out of school. There's, there's a whole nother, a whole nother situation is there's a baseball education crisis in the places like the Dominican Republic where um, these guys drop out of high school or don't even go to high school to go to these academies to play baseball full time. You know, they get some schooling, a lot of English classes too, but they're, they're dropping out of school. They have no – and then when they get released two years later, half of these guys don't even make it out of the Dominican Summer League. Um, What do they have? They have absolutely nothing. No high school degree. A lot of times no high school experience, period, uh, in their 20s. And, and there's an education crisis there that baseball needs to handle. And there's, you know, talk about um, how baseball can – allocate money, but for the future. So you're not necessarily giving a guy all this money at one point um, and spreading it out more in terms of the signing bonus, or at least giving guys more money um, from, or insurance or whatever it may be from, from, you know, the international signing. And there's so many guys, you know, you look at the Dominican summer league, every, the Yankees have two teams, there's hundreds of guys at this, at this Academy training, and very few of them actually make it out of there, and um, those that do, you never know how they're, they'll perform in the United States, but those who don't, they really don't get a lot out of it, aside from you know being able to say that they were a professional baseball
0: player. That's an interesting way of looking at things, and that's something that, that really isn't talked about so much. Everyone talk, knows about the the hits, you know, the Wanda Francos, the Vladimir Guerrero Juniors, the Tatis Juniors, the Juan Sotos, but no one really ever talks about the guy that doesn't that doesn't make it, but and that's a that's a good thing that's going to be changed hopefully for the near future for all for all these players. Um, but switching back for for today's big day with Arias, can you give us to the best of your knowledge a scouting report on Roderick Arias so that the, everyone who's listening and every all the fans for the Yankees can know who is now entering our farm system.
2: Definitely. So he's 17 years old, so he's very young, but the reports so far, obviously he's the number one prospect in class has definitely been around him being a five tool player, you know, hit power, run um, arm and glove, you know, a switch hitting shortstop. A lot of the, the hit tool has been the best regarded, which is the, the tool that is, in my opinion, is definitely by far the most important um, being able to hit for average, being able to put the ball in play, which um, is he does very well? I think MLB Pipeline has him as a, a sixty on the eight uh, on the twenty eighty scouting scouting scale. And in terms of the hit tool, he has solid power. I think they listed as fifty five for for Arias, which is above average, very good. Same thing with his speed. I think he's been timed in the sixty yard dash at six point six seconds. So he's definitely very speedy. Seventeen years old though. So you know they when they when you the guys do go to the academy and do go. Into the Yankees farm system, they're going to be packing on a lot of muscle. So the speed definitely digresses, and I think that's one thing that whenever these guys sign internationally as sixteen years old. At sixteen years old, um, speed is almost irrelevant unless the guys are insanely fast. Because you know how much between sixteen years old and eighteen years old a guy can physically change. Same thing, same thing to touch on that because a lot of people talk about this as well. Is him staying at the shortstop position. The guy's seventeen years old. What makes you think he's going to be? And he hasn't stepped foot on a professional baseball field. What makes you think he's going to be a shortstop for the rest of his career and going to bump off Carlos Correa and all these people, all this stuff that people say on social media? Um, so he can, you know, Miguel Cabrera was a shortstop. Dermis Garcia, I don't know if you know him, um, was an international signing a few years ago and was became a permanent DH, a little bit of first base because you know, when he saw between the time he signed and the time he made it to high A, he'd gained probably a hundred pounds. So, you know, you never know how these guys are going to mature and what the position change could look like, um, what his overall makeup could look like. What if he turns into just a power hitter in terms of not a five to a player or um, that, but you know, his defense is good overall on the scouting report. That's something that there hasn't been a, a ton of that I've seen, but um, I've heard he's, a very solid defender, good range, good hands, good speed on the bases. So overall it sounds like as of right now the Yankees are very much getting a five tool complete package.
0: That's a, that's awesome to hear. And then I've heard that he that he is the touching on him being a shortstop. I've heard he's been regarded as the best Dominican shortstop to come out of come off the island since Wanda Franco. Are there is how are they how are the two of them similar and co- coincidentally how are they different?
2: I've definitely seen um, comparisons and from watching video, they definitely look very, very similar um, in terms of size. I think for, you know Arias is only six um, one, um, but and he's very, very like bulky, a little bit built like Wander Franco in terms of you know how you look at him. He's he's small. I bet Franco's like 5'10", 5'11", but he's very, very muscular, very, very built, um, and also very fast. Good defender, and then the hit tool is off the charts for both Arias and Franco um, with the ability for power, but two switch hitting shortstops who hit the ball extremely well um, and really are five-tool players. And Franco was, you know, the five-tool player, can't-miss guy. And, you know, you cross your fingers that in a few years, that's what Roger Arias is going to
0: look like. That's definitely something good to hear. And speaking of five-tool players, yeah, I've heard that Arias has been referred to as Jason dominguez Light. Is there truth to that statement? And how do you compare and contrast the two of them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, when you, you see these guys at 60 and 17 and they're switch hitters hitting the ball out of the ballpark, you know, you just compare them to them a little bit. And, you know, I can understand, especially since the Yankees are signing him, you have two switch hitters who can hit the ball very far um, and are the top international guys in the class. I can, you know, the the speed is definitely there to compare. Um the The switch hitting is definitely there, and the power for both of them is definitely comparable. So I would de- I would definitely compare him more Arias more to Franco, but I could definitely see how the offensive comparison could be made for Jason Miguez.
0: With Arias, what is what are what is the what is the major tool he has that is undervalued? Such as is his arm stronger than than previously reported? Is he faster than what people see of him?
2: Um, I think it actually is his arm. I've seen a lot of stuff saying that his, watch out for his arm because he's got a cannon for an arm. Um, not only accurate, but he throws it very hard, um, gets it over there very easily to first base from shortstop. So that maybe could definitely indicate a position change possibly in the future. But, um, you know, that's definitely something to keep an eye on that might be undervalued. He has, has a great arm.
0: And then so with the, with that being said, with a great arm, what being so young, what's, what's his glaring deficiency that we can talk about and something he can improve upon?
2: That's, that's tough because all the, all the reports list them as five tools. Um, his, I would say his um, quickness, his flashiness at shortstop. Um, you know, you think about the, the shortstops that, that are quick. They got the quick hands, make the behind the, behind the back flips and, you know, really look like clean Arias is, is more mechanical and definitely looks good at shortstop from the videos I've seen, but he's not necessarily flashy. You know, not going to make any, any insane, insane plays from, from what I've seen. So I definitely think that is, is something to work on and improve on um, is just the overall quickness, hand speed, f- um, quickness at shortstop.
0: So here's the big question. Where do you think he's starting the season? Do you think it's going to be the DSL or do you think he's doing the complex league? And why do you think he's going to go to either – where do you think he starts at one of those spots? Or which one of those spots do you think he starts at and why?
2: I think he's going to start in the DSL just because that's where a lot of guys do start. Um, when, when they're signed internationally, you only see the older guys, you know, some guys sign at 18, 19, 20 when they're, when they're older and and have developed more and, and a team picks them up because of that, then that's usually the only time they start, um, stateside, but they usually have a season, um, in the Dominican summer league to, to develop, They have the full Dominican Summer League season. And then there's an instructional league camp in the United States that, uh, you know, in Tampa that they have a lot of guys go to their first year. And then they go back to the DR Academy and they have another um, like instructional league kind of thing there. So they're basically because the Dominican Summer League, remember, it starts in June. So it's not like they're going April to September. Instead, they have them go from June to, you know, October, November. So that's usually what the plan is for the international guys. Maybe not as many games. Sometimes we'll have him just stay in the DR for that instructional league or just stay in the U.S. Um, in Tampa for that instructional league. So that's definitely the plan for him. And then so that would mean 2023. We would see him see him stateside probably in Tampa in the, in the FCL or uh, potentially with the Tarpons.
0: All right. You think they'll, in 2023, you think they'll kind of give him the same uh, projection or not the same trajectory as they did with Dominguez, kind of extended spring training, complex league, and then kind of get and jump him right over to low A, kind of manage certain expectations for him that way?
2: Yeah, potentially. I think the Yankees, I think Jason Dominguez going to low A as an 18-year-old, that's something you really, really don't see. So usually it's just a season in the FCL and rookie ball. Um as an 18, as your eighteen-year-old season, if he plays as well and and looks looks as good as Jason Dominguez looked um, in the in an extended spring training and in his in his first season in pro ball, then maybe he'll make that jump and do the same thing Dominguez did in heading up to, to Tampa. But you know, I wouldn't count that out. But I definitely think the FCL is is usually where those guys go.
0: Here's a I, I got two fun questions for you. If you can start bench and cut the th- these three. Volpe, Peraza, and Arias. Just strictly based on, on the specs and based on the numbers that you see, and all the on all the scouting reports. Where would you where, How would you rank those three?
2: Right now, like, do you, like if right now they're they're on the field, or you mean right, right now? now um, Volpi, Peraza, uh, start Volpi, bench Peraza, cut Arias.
0: Okay. Now, how would you rank? the following one through six or one through seven, possibly one through six. We have Volpe who fan just came out with their, their top 38 Yankee prospects. Volpe is the number one prospect in, in the Yankee system. Peraza is the number two. You have Oswaldo Cabrera is the number 12. Trey Sweeney is the number 13. Vargas is the number five. And obviously Arias wasn't, wasn't on there. So those six guys, Volpe, Peraza, Cabrera, Sweeney, Vargas, Arias. How would you rank them one through six?
2: I would rank it Volpe, Peraza, Cabrera, Vargas, Sweeney, then Arias. Those were the six, right? Am I missing one? Yeah. So, so yeah, Volpe, Peraza, and Cabrera, definitely at the top. Um, just the, how much they've played in the upper levels of the minors and how well they've played – Hitting three hundred and in uh going low a high a, um in Volpe's age twenty season was insane. Peraza making it up to Triple A in his in the season he turned twenty one years old was insane. And in the season he had Oswaldo Cabrera same thing, absolute dominant breakout year. Vargas the tools are definitely there, but he's so far away, so young, um a lot of tools are underdeveloped with him. Even though he looks really really special um he's just not quite he's so raw not quite developed Sweeney has some ways to go and I'd put a lot of money on a bet that he's not going to be a shortstop in the big leagues maybe not even a middle infielder um and then Arias being that he's so far so young that's how I'd rank him all right perfect
1: hi Eli how you doing um Enrique here first of all thank you for coming on with us
2: of course of course thank you and nice to meet you
1: nice to meet you um speaking of my fellow Cuban um Alexander Vargas, I got a couple of questions up for you about him. First of all, where do you put him in comparison with other fellow Cuban infielders playing in the majors, such as Yuli Gurriel, Yohan Moncada, Yandy Rodriguez, and obviously the older of the bunch, Jose Abreu. Good question. I
2: wouldn't necessarily compare him to, to any of the guys he's listed. Um, he's, he's, he stands out definitely a bit. Um, I one, one comp who, who I saw the other day or who I saw a video of the other day make a behind-the-back flip and a nice play in a Padres uniform about 10 years ago, Orlando Hudson. I don't know if you remember him, but, you know, a yeah. slick, you know, a slimmer shortstop who, you know, he's tall, he's slim, runs the bases well, great, great defender, puts the ball in play, but nothing insane. That that would be my comp for Vargas. You know, I definitely like what, what he has in terms of, Vargas is a five-tool pl- or Sorry, a four-tool player. He's just missing the power, in my opinion. Um, you know, he's 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 pretty small, and and maybe the and the power came a little bit this year with, I think he had three home runs in the FCL, which isn't bad by any stretch, uh, especially considering the amount of games. And and you know, he's not a big guy at all. So I definitely think the power will come in the future as he gains weight, gains muscle, and as he. Um, you know, progresses through the minor leagues, the harder you hit the ball, the more you hit the ball, the more home runs are going to come if you square it up. So I think that's going to come, but you know, I like the Orlando Hudson comp.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Orlando Hudson was a good major leaguer. I like that comp too. Um, where do you see Vargas uh, staying, staying out in the future? Do you see him as shortstop long-term?
2: As of right now, I definitely see him as a shortstop. Um, he, I don't, I don't even know if he can play anywhere I can't like envision him anywhere else on the field. I think maybe he could have a potential future in the corner outfields, depending on how he develops. But that's, that's beside the point. He's definitely looks like a shortstop. And I definitely think his future is a shortstop.
1: Done done deal. That's awesome. Um, I read that prior to the 2021 season, he added about 30 pounds. I think you just referenced that um, of muscle to his frame in order to hit harder contact with the ball. Being that he's a switch hitter, where do you see most of his power coming from, especially after adding the muscle, the left or right side?
2: Definitely the left side. I think his swing is much smoother, much better from the left side. Uh, swing from the right side is, is good too, but it it's not nearly, doesn't nearly look as polished and developed. His swing from the left looks much better. There's a lot more power. And as you said, as he keeps adding muscle, that, pow- that power is going to come.
1: Well, we can only hope. We can only hope as Yankee fans, right? And lastly from me, um, what do you think Vargas's ceiling is at the majors? I know recently Fangraphs has him as the number five overall prospect. Um, scouts so far seem to think of him and Peraza as the best defensive shortstops in the Yankee system. Could he have a chance to be a starter down the line as he continues to physically mature and hit the ball harder? Or is he more of a defensive substitution type of player down the line in the majors? What do you think?
2: That's a tough question. Um because it's especially because he's so young. I think this was his age 19 season if I'm not mistaken. Um so it's just so hard to like sometimes project, you know, exactly where they can fall, but he definitely looks like a starting shortstop in the in the big leagues and definitely looks like he can play that part. Power is important to add because you know, you look at the, all the, the list of shortstops in the MLB and how many home runs, every starting shortstop hit, every starting, every starter, every almost every position um, in the MLB and look at how many home runs they hit. And, you know, I don't think Vargas as of right now would be able to compete with that. So he definitely needs to add some muscle and hit some home runs, which I, you know, as, as we said, I definitely think he's working on. I definitely think he will hit more. Um, I definitely see him as a starter, but he's fast and plays great defense. So that could equate to potentially being more of a defensive replacement guy, but he looks like a starter as of now. And that's
1: what I'd go with. Thank you, Eli. Thank you for your, for your answers.
0: Piggybacking on that for a quick second. What is, what was it that kept Vargas down in the FCL this year, as opposed to say tre, uh, Trey Sweeney getting, getting bumped from FCL all the way to over to, to low weight ball. What was why was Sweeney pushed a little bit more than, than Vargas? Was it just the power or was there something else behind that?
2: Well, Sweeney's 22, I think. And um, he was, um am um, sorry. Uh, he was, Vargas was, was 19 this season. So just based on that, they want to, and you know, Sweeney was coming out of college. Um, so he definitely has, has the upper edge and more experience. And he's definitely on top of Vargas in that depth chart. So I think that was the reason for the move and wanting to get him up to a higher level of competition um. Whereas Vargas was at a very high level of competition in terms of his skill level last year, and Trey Sweeney wouldn't have been in the FCL.
0: Gotcha. And s- speaking of Sweeney, how how is his ability, or what is his abilities compared to Volpe's? Uh, hitting hitting differences, fielding differences, mobility, stuff, things like that.
2: Um, I definitely think Sweeney is more of a power slash strikeout hit the ball out of the park or swing and miss kind of guy um opposed to where Volpe isn't is isn't that at all and is definitely more put the ball in play where you know Sweeney hits the ball very very hard um opposed to Volpe well Volpe does as well but not in the way Sweeney does where it's he's kind of a double home run kind of guy so I definitely think that's that's a difference. Um Sweeney is not nearly as as good and polished defensively as um as Anthony Volpe. Definitely has to work on that. The speed isn't isn't there. I think Sweeney definitely trails Volpe in in just about all the categories, but um a lot of developing to do. And as I mentioned, I don't think he stays at, at shortstop or in the middle infield, probably, you know,
3: first base, third base.
0: I've heard those I've heard those same comps as well, or even even Going as far as saying that he might be trade bait going forward, yeah, which, you know,
3: could be could be
0: put into the package possibly for Matt Olson or somebody else. But since we uh, since we're now since we've moved on to uh, to the number one prospect in Yankee system, Volpe, what changes have you seen or have you noticed? Excuse me, with Volpe since he was first drafted.
2: Well, he made a very big swing adjustment or, or completely changed his mechanics last year during the COVID year. Um, He he looked at Alex Bregman's swing, actually, and it was was something that he modeled his a little bit after um, in terms of really, really using the legs. Being a little guy, he wants to maximize every single muscle in his body to put it on that baseball and hit it as hard as he can. He definitely did that, and I think we saw that in terms of the power that he showcased given his size this past season. But, you know, he, he made some swing adjustments, changed a lot has added some muscle, has definitely gotten in the weight room, has matured a lot you know, in terms of his defense as well. So he's made some,
0: some big adjustments. And what, what clubhouse leadership qualities has he demonstrated to you, the best of your knowledge? He definitely looks like,
2: you know, all I know is from what I see and, and what, you know, the way the players and coaches talk about him, but uh, see on the field and the, and the way the, play, the players and coaches talk about him. But he definitely looks like a leader out there. The way he carries himself, especially in in interviews he does, he very, very looks mature, like a leader, like a captain of a team, you know, a guy that wants to make those around him better, definitely has some leadership qualities
4: that that we'll see down the road. All right, Eli. Again, thanks for joining us. I know it probably sounds like a broken record, but we realize how in high demand you are these days. So welcome. And thank Thank you. you. Of course, of course, anytime. Uh, so, my questions for you are about Oswald Peraza since I've been designated the, uh, the president of the Oswald Peraza fan club on this podcast. So, starting with that, do you think he's a stopgap or do you think he's the real deal? I think he's the real deal. I compare him
2: to when I think like a Xander Bogart's level kind of player as, his, as the top ceiling. You know, obviously the top ceiling is not going to be – always what he turns out to be, but that's that's a little bit of my comp in terms of you potentially have a guy who's not going to be, you know, an insanely flashy, exciting, crazy player, but he's going to be an all-star shortstop. At least that's how he's looked. He's only 21 years old, definitely more developing to do, and he absolutely raked this year, makes the plays, hits the ball hard, puts it in play, ability for power. There's really you, – you just love everything about Peraza, especially the speed – I believe he led the organization. I don't know if it was him or Oswaldo Cabrera led the organization in stolen bases as well. Um, a lot of speed. He's, he's really the, the complete package. Um, I don't think he's a stopgap, and I think he would make a great starting shortstop for the Oakland A's, um, and I think that's where we might eventually see him, um, given, given everything that's happening. Oh
4: man, don't say that. I will cry <laughs> myself to sleep. Um, so with that being said, how has he found success so quickly at just twenty-one years old?
2: Yeah, he was another guy that was a very underrated international signing. I don't think he signed for very much. I I want to say he was six hundred thousand dollars. You know, something where he he wasn't necessarily a top guy, and out of nowhere, he's he's come out and crushed it. And you know, going back to what I said about the way that he's not flashy. He's not a guy that's going to hit the ball 500 feet. He's not a guy that's going to make insane plays or, you know, you're watch, watching a game and going to go, that guy is insanely, insanely talented. Over the course of weeks and days and months, you see how consistent he is. He gets a base hit every three at-bats. He, you know, runs the bases, goes first to third well, makes the plays that he needs to defensively. I think that's why he's had such so much success is because he was – a little bit undervalued in terms of those abilities, and he's definitely come out and proved to be consistent to do all the little things the right way. And and I think that's definitely what has brought him so much is the the um, how much he's matured mentally and physically.
4: Yeah, I, I've been high on him for a while, going back to last year. Uh, just seeing him, some of his film. In the minor leagues and seeing him in spring training, and uh, I believe it was 2019 or the start of 2020 before COVID hit, and just watching him move left to right and uh making plays, he's, he's definitely a fluid infielder. And uh, you know, I've been making the argument on this podcast and offline of the podcast too over like whether to get Correa or keep Peraza and let him play. And I'm like, just let him play, you know, like why are you gonna prospect hug? Why are you gonna? Do go through all this nonsense to spend over 300 million on one player when you got an in house solution that's a viable option. So that's the way I've been doing Peraza. Um, so if it came down to it between either Andujar or him being the backup infielder going into 2022, w- which way do you think it goes? Do you think they defer to? And Duhar, who's been there for a while, even though he's been banged up by injury, or do you think they just kick the tires on Duhar and keep Peraza on the 26-man when everything gets said and done?
2: That's tough because it's just hard not to imagine Peraza playing a bigger role than the role that Duhar played and being a, a backup. I think, honestly, Oswald, Carre- Oswald Cabrera's- Oswaldo, excuse me, Cabrera is going to fill that role, especially because, well, Cabrera's older and he can play – First, or you can play second base, third base, and shortstop. So I think that definitely values him. The speed is similar. Maybe Oswaldo has more speed. Peraza puts the ball in play, but I think Cabrera might fill that role, fit to fill that, be fit to fill that role a bit more than Peraza, given the overall player outlook. And Peraza is the type of player you want making an impact on the team every single day, opposed to being you know a defensive replacement
4: play every few days. Good answer. I like it. I like it. Um, and then going back to the whole trade situation that you mentioned that I'll probably cry myself to sleep over. Do you see Peraza going in a package somewhere um, for either a starting pitcher or like you said, Matt Olson and how, how probable do you think that is once the season starts and once this lockout is over?
2: In my opinion, they 100% should be dealing him be given his talent and given how high he's thought of how high his value is, what he can provide to a team. You know, I can see it being since Olsen is Olsen. I don't know if he's one or two, two seasons that the Yankees would have under control and Peraza it's two. So Peraza, I believe he was on the 40 man rot, He was on the 40 man roster. So three or four seasons that Peraza would be under control and you have a potential, you know, big time starting shortstop for a big league team, he would be the guy that you would be sending over in a package, which would be so important to not give away an Anthony Fulpe, not give away a Luis Medina, not give away, you know, an Austin Wells, maybe, um, and being able to keep those top prospects. And as we as we say, the Yankees have so many shortstops in, in the minors yeah. and so many options in the big leagues, especially with the money they have to spend, they can they can right get any of the big time shortstops. So I would say it's possible that he was, he'd be traded. You know, I don't, I, I don't know if I would say probable given how highly the Yankees think of him. Um, it would definitely have to be the right deal. Um, so it's, it's definitely possible in my opinion, given his value, if there's the right
4: deal there, something should be made. Okay. So uh, here's, I'll give us, give you a scenario and you can tell me which way you think it goes. Assuming, They keep Peraza, and then Volpe shows up. Is Peraza's future at second, third, or first, if he's still on the roster when Volpe gets here?
2: I could see – ooh, that's tough. (laughs) Um, I could really see going either way. I think Peraza is more fit to stay at shortstop um, and definitely looks like more of a shortstop. But given Volpe's talent, and especially, you know, he's working a lot on developing his arm, um, I think that they can switch second and short. Yeah, I I, I think Carraza definitely fits the profile to be able to move to different positions more and looks more, you know, versatile in terms of his playing style, whereas Volpe might not. Um, So I would say Volpe sticks more at second base shortstop, but primarily shortstop where Peraza could really move around to all three,
4: okay. if
2: needed, if needed.
4: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that, that totally makes, makes all the sense in the world. Uh, so getting back to Volpe, do you believe that Volpe can be the future shortstop of the organization or will he just become trade bait that can be used to fill a gap somewhere, in, somewhere else in the club that can use, you know,
2: another option? I think Volpe's not going anywhere, and I think he's the shortstop in yeah. the future for this team. You know when you watch him play in the minor leagues, he stands out on the field. There's no one like him. You know I, I keep saying he has that it factor. When you when you right. watch a game and you you see how talented and how skilled a player can be and how talented he is at that level, he has it. The way he plays the game, makes the big defensive plays, hits the crap out of the ball considering his size. You know, not many. I, I think he's like 5'11", one one seventy, something like that. Yeah, and he. He hit 20. I don't know the exact number 25 26 home runs this past season. Absolutely crushed the ball, absolutely raked. Um, five. He's he's almost a five tool package considering, um, the way his power is developed. Anthony Volpe, in my opinion, is definitely a, go, going to be a big league
4: star. Yeah, it, he definitely seems promising for sure. Um, has he been doing any work towards accuracy and arm speed at shortstop?
2: Yes, he's actually been using weighted baseballs and doing a the, the, bit of the uh, pitcher, you know, thing that they go through, the pitcher drive line routine with the weighted baseballs, and also been throwing on Trackman and Rapsodo, which are the two, um, you know, things that calculate spin rate and velocity and, and arm angle and all these things that have the ability to – Look at what it is about his his throwing motion, um, and build up strength and how he's throwing the ball and able and being able to throw it accurately and specifically more harder. So he's been working on those those things and you know doing the pull downs where you run and into a full sprint and try to throw the ball as hard as you can and those kind of things in order to gain arm strength, uh, gain arms strength because that's really his only weakness.
4: Yeah. Well, I will say that uh, I never really used to pay much attention to my league baseball until up until a few years ago when I saw the how stacked this farm system is. Finally, yeah. you know, we go went through the dark days of between twenty ten and twenty sixteen, where it was just trading every single farm asset they had, the like the win now mentality, and. At, It's just scary to think what this roster could look like with Cabrera, Peraza, Dominguez, Volpe, you know, Antonio Gomez, hopefully behind the plate someday. Just where this team can go with all the farm assets they have is just absolutely astounding. So, but uh, I'm going to kick it over to Danny right now, but thanks for your time, Eli. I appreciate it. Of course.
3: Hey, Eli. So I'm going to do the same thing. Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, We really appreciate it. So I'm kind of going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, take a little break from talking prospects. I want to talk about you. Um, why baseball? I feel like you know your generation. Uh, baseball is not the number one sports, part football or basketball. So, what what brought your attention to baseball?
2: That's a great question, and it's so hard to answer because I was so young when I fell in love with the game. I almost couldn't tell you what like attracted me to it event uh, first you know, playing T ball or or just watching it on TV and the style of it or whatever it was. One thing that I love about it is how many little things there are to notice on every given play. Um and how it's the kind of game where the smarter you are and the better you know the game, there's infinite things you see on any given pitch that you notice that you look at that makes the game move so much faster and makes the game style so much different. Um, I don't know. I don't know just what, what about it that just makes the, it makes it just such, even though it's, it's so slow, it just makes it feel quick and makes everything feel exciting um, for me. And And I've always, always just absolutely loved it and everything about it and how mental the game is and how mental the decisions you make are and, the instincts in baseball in terms of the throws you make. You pick up the ball where to throw, the pitches you have to make, the 100-millisecond spot where you have to decide what pitch to hit, just all the mental aspects of it and how much the game relies on mental strength is one thing that that I love about it. Um, it's just just overall, you know, I don't know what what exactly five-year-old me saw in it, but um, I'm glad that baseball has been picked as, as my – my sport
3: that's awesome man and so I, I'm asking a question um in terms of connections here because I knew a guy that went to that, that went to Seton Hall um played baseball there Sal I, I'm wondering if you guys cross paths
2: so the when I was like eight nine years old before I got into all the um you know, broadcasting stuff. I went to the games as a fan and when, you know, sometimes get autographs from the players and, and just watch the games. And I remember Sal Zadda, big first baseman, Italian first baseman, absolutely raked. Yes. Um, I absolutely remember him. Um, I remember, I think he had a two home run game where he hit the ball over. There's like a big parking deck in, in left field and he hit the ball over the parking deck. Um, yeah, I remember – I definitely remember him. He was he was a beast when, when I was, you know, really, really little. He's one of the players from those, like, 2013-14 teams that I really, really remember.
3: Yep. So, Sal and I played ball together at Fordham Prep. I was a senior. He was a freshman. And even as a freshman, he raked. So, I, I just followed him. I knew he was going to have a, a great career. So, that's, that's a pretty cool connection there. Um, now, moving on to the media side of things um, – Who's your inspiration in baseball media or, or, or just media in general?
2: It's a great question. Um, definitely watching two guys who I've watched on TV, Ken Rosenthal and Greg Amsinger um, of MLB Network, and no longer Ken Rosenthal of MLB Network, unfortunately. Um, but those two guys definitely are two of the top inspirations, growing up listening to Michael Kay. And Ryan Rucco and, and John Sterling and being fortunate enough. And even on the Met side, being able to listen to, to Gary and Ron and Keith. And that's a darn good booth over there too. And being able to to hear those guys call the games have, has definitely been been my inspiration, especially, you know, guys like Rosenthal who are who are everywhere, breaking all the news. You know, every news story is obviously now nowadays it's him him or passing and and every game he's in the dugout with with all the scoops and interviewing all the players um, because that's, that's really been my favorite part of it is being able to, to interview the players and, and ask questions and, you know, get to hear stories and being around the players. So that's definitely, definitely one thing. And also all the minor league people that I've crossed with have definitely served cross paths with is, have definitely served in, as inspirations. You know, you think about all the broadcasters for all the minor league teams that I've met and the, the media relations people and the other minor league writers for the local newspapers, Around all the uh, minor league games that I've gone to, those people have definitely been people that have have showed me the way and and been inspirations.
3: That's awesome to hear, man. Um, I think I think Dave, Dave has something to say about Ken Ros- Rosenthal. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, let's let's go to Dave.
4: <laughs> so I'm in the free Ken Rosenthal camp. I think it was absolutely ridiculous. Re- Ridiculous what MLB did to him as far as like kneecapping him goes like my I I get it. MLB network is owned by the commissioner. But when a commissioner has that much power to go to a network and say, I want this guy fired because he said some bad things about me. Like, I I just want to know, like how you feel about it, because me personally, I feel like he did his job as a journalist. He held the top echelon of MLB accountable for what they're doing with running the ship aground and basically just saying eh, we don't care if there's a season or not
2: yeah no i 100 agree and i think it's more being able to voice his opinion on his network and do his journalism job and he was really stripped of that by by the commissioner and major league baseball for you know saying his honest opinion which is his job as as a journalist um and so i definitely have been the free ken rosenthal camp as well and You know, there's definitely a lot of changes, in my opinion, that need to be made to to a lot of things that that are happening in in the MLB.
4: Absolutely, because you look at the NHL, you look at the NBA, you look at the, the NFL, for God's sake, and all the things they've been saying about Goodell. Especially when the with the whole Brady situation way back when, and it's like you don't see any of these other commissioners having journalists or you know writers fired for speaking the truth and holding you know the top brass of the league accountable. I, I just think it's ridiculous. But anyway,
3: that's how yeah. I feel about Ken. Another Ken. thing is,
2: I definitely agree. But like another thing, oh, and one thing I've learned from like all the minor league baseball stuff in in terms of media is like you never know what's going on behind the scenes. Like there's so much that you could, we could not know about what Ken Rosenthal has, has or hasn't said, or what Manfred has done, or or I don't know. I don't know what it could be, but I always try to think of it like open-mindedly. Like what if, if something you, you, you never know?
1: Eli, I agree too, man. It, it's, it's a shame that nowadays you can't even do your job without getting let go. That. You should definitely keep an eye out for what happened with Ken if, in your future especially because I, I know I speak for all the guys here. We see you as a rising star, and we know that that's, that's going to be you in a few years, man, hopefully on Yes where we could watch you or maybe even nationally. So, you know, hopefully you don't run into something like that with like what happened with Ken. That was really unfortunate for him.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. I really appreciate the, the support. I will fall out a sword lot.
1: for you, Eli. <laughs> Me too <laughs> We got Thank your you. back, Eli <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you
3: To get back on, on the prospect track I, I want to talk a little bit about Osvaldo Cabrera Well, actually, no, before that um, In terms of Yankee shortstops, stats That we've spoken about today Volpe, Peraza, Cabrera, Sweeney And we can even add Arias to this conversation Who has the best tools In terms of contact, power, arm, speed?
2: Peraza Hundred percent. I think and yeah, I think Peraza is definitely the full package. Um, you know, Volpe is creeping up there, especially in the power department. Um, you know, he strikes out I think a little bit more than Peraza. Volpe does. Um, but it's definitely between those two, which is tough because they're right, they're neck and neck in terms of who's gonna be the next guy up with the big league team. Um so so that's definitely like a tough little, tough little battle there, and I think it's going to be fun for the next year or two seeing who's going to be the the next man up and who's really going to guy that's it. going to take that shortstop leadership role. But it's between those two. Add Oswaldo Cabrera to the conversation. He strikes out too much, in my opinion. Um, not like not that he he would be ineffective. Like he's a great player, but I think he strikes out too much in order to be in that conversation with a Peraza and Volpe as you know the best shortstop of that bunch.
3: What do you where do you rank Sweeney in terms of power? Um, I, I think Volpe might be number one. Um, I think Sweeney is probably number two in that bunch, um, and then we're going down the line with Peraza, Vargas, and maybe Cabrera is number three.
2: I'd probably put Cabrera at number two. I think I'd go. I think I'd go um, Volpe. Hmm. Uh, actually, now now you're making me think about it. Just because. Volpe, he's not a power hitter. Like, he, he's the kind of guy that just hits the ball hard, and his swing is just so good and so clean, and he uses his legs so much that the ball just leaves the ballpark. Um, he, 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 I wouldn't describe him at all as like a power hitter and a guy who necessarily tries to hit the ball out of the ballpark. So, I would actually probably go Oswaldo Cabrera first, Trey Sweeney, then Volpe um, and Peraza.
3: Gotcha. Because coming out of college, Sweeney has – Sweeney has a great swing. And I I think from the left side, um, when you put him at the corners, it will be really interesting to see how that power develops. Because, you know, if you don't got to worry about the defense so much, the power just kind of comes naturally, especially in Yankee Stadium. Um, So going back to Cabrera, um, how did he make the jump from where he was at the low minors from uh, DSL all the way to like single A where he had limited power – to being a guy that you say now is number one in terms of the power tool. He
2: definitely added some muscle during the COVID year. And then another thing is swing adjustment. He just like Volpe, he made a big swing adjustment during the 2020, you know, COVID year where there wasn't a season added a bigger leg kick, brought his arms back a lot more to give a lot more power into a swing. And it definitely worked. So, so getting in the weight room is a big thing for him. Same thing with swing adjustments. And as he continues to, to, you know, get in the weight room and, and continues to mature, you know, he's definitely going to keep adding power. And same thing with all these guys, you know, they're so young and seeing how big of these big of adjustments these so many guys made in the Yankee system and how many guys had a breakout year after this COVID year, you never know who's going to be next up next year. And you never know how things can look in the future, who's going to improve, who can improve what so quickly. Um, so I definitely think that Cabrera has done a lot of things to increase his value and make him the player he is.
3: So Yankees just hired Dylan Lawson. Well, they, they, they promoted him from head instructor to um, their hitting coach. How much of an impact did he have on a guy like Cabrera?
2: He had a big impact. I know those two worked, worked together quite a little bit. Same thing with Joe Migliaccio, who was the hitting coach in Somerset and was actually promoted to Lawson's job as the Yankees hitting coordinator. They worked very closely with him in making those swing adjustments. Um, and, and adding more power and being, you know, their philosophy, as I've said, is, is hit strikes hard, where, they're what, where what they're trying to do is be patient at the plate, swing at your pitch. And when you're swinging at your pitch, it should be 100% full effort every time, maximize every muscle in your body to be able to put the ball in play and hit it hard. Um, and that's definitely something they did in trying to maximize Carraza's ability, or excuse me, Cabrera's abilities and have him hit the ball as hard as he can. And I definitely think he did that. And the strength and conditioning department the Yankees organization does a great job at at putting muscle on these guys, getting them on the right nutrition plans, all those things to make them the best player athlete they could possibly be.
3: That's awesome. Um, So Cabrera, again, uh, the reason why Tyler Wade was expendable, I I really believe in – is due to Oswaldo Cabrera and the fact that he could play multiple positions and you you spoke about that a little bit earlier in the pod um do you see him playing some outfield is he getting some outfield reps in center specifically
2: hmm that's a tough question and I don't know just because like I've I've never seen him play the outfield so you know he could be you definitely think that might be something you know in spring training the Yankees will hit him some fly balls or or whatever that may be, just to test the waters in terms of his ability to play other positions. Because, man, that would be, that would be quite impressive and, and versatile and quite valuable if he could play the outfield too.
3: And here's my last question for you, Eli. Um, are there any infield prospects that we may not know about that are on your radar or, or that may make an impact, maybe not in 22 or 23, but sometime in the future?
2: One of my favorite prospects is Andres Chaparro. He is a first baseman and third baseman. He hits, he's another guy that hits the crap out of the baseball. He registered exit velocities of like 117, 118 miles per hour this past season. In the minors um, he hits the ball like one of those guys where the ball just explodes off the bat. Like when he squares one up, it goes very, very far and is very, very loud. So he's definitely a guy to keep an eye on. Um, Anthony Garcia is a first baseman, big, big first baseman. I, he's like Aaron judge size, six seven, six eight, two hundred seventy 270 pounds. And he has some of the most power in minor league baseball and he's a switch hitter. So from both sides of the plate it just destroys the baseball. He's another guy that it just sounds different coming off the bat. He's, you know, got that judge Stanton Gallo kind of size, not kind of power. The only thing is that he strikes out, as much, if not more, than anyone in the Yankee system, so he definitely needs to work on that department. Um, but there's definitely the the potential there to keep to for him to be, you know, a big time player.
0: All right, thank you, Leilai. Thank you very much for all that all that information. Appreciate we all appreciate everything you're doing for us. Um, hey, why don't you let everyone know where where they can find you?
2: So the Twitter is Eli J. Fishman, and that's where I I post the most and, um, you know, share all the articles I write, all that stuff, Um, everything, everything there is to know is there. Um, Instagram's Eli J. Fishman as well. And then check out prospects.com, which is the website I write for. We have guys at every level of, writers at every level of the Yankees farm system. You know, it's, we're, we're, I think we're, I don't know, like six or seven guys, where we freaking love the yankees minor league system and that's that's our passion and like i said we're all we're all minor league baseball nerds and know everything there is to know there's you know about the yankee system so i publish a lot of articles there definitely check that out and the the twitter as well
0: all right perfect thank you hopefully i can see you this summer over at some of the at the at the tampa Tarpons games man i live close enough there so i can shoot over there. I know uh, one of your colleagues, John Brophy, is going to be making making appearances down there, and, and he'll make an, he's going to be making an appearance on the podcast as well in the, in the future, so maybe we could all link up and ca- catch some games together, man.
2: Absolutely. For sure. Hopefully, I'll be down here for spring training.
0: <laughs> I hope there is a spring training. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Alright, Eli, thank you very much for, for everything, man. I appreciate it. Of course.
2: Anytime. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you again, Eli, for jumping on with us. That was a great interview. Very Extremely knowledgeable. Lots of information. Lots of things that everybody on this podcast and everyone who listens can digest for us. One of the big things that happened in the past week was Rachel Balkovec being hired as the low-A manager for the Tampa Tarpons. And Danny has a couple of uh, things he wants to talk about with that, especially having a daughter himself. So, Danny, please take that away.
3: Thanks, Mark. Yeah, this was a it was a huge week. This was a huge hire for not only um, baseball, but for just equality. And I'm going to touch upon that a little bit later. So um, Rachel, she's been in baseball for over 10 years. Uh, she's had various roles from strength and conditioning coordinators to heading coach. Um, she's been in the industry for a long time, like I was saying. Prior to being in baseball, um, she was a Division One catcher. Uh, first at Creighton and then she went to New Mexico State. Um, she has two master's degrees, which is, you know, in terms of education, you want that in somebody, um, n- no matter what leadership position they're in. So she has a master's in kinesiology and another one in human movement. Um, so her resume is extremely impressive. Um, and hopefully she'll be able to, you know, make our minor leaguers better baseball players, better men. Um, so I'm excited to have her um, in that role and see what she does with it. Um but even even before she got to this point, she had a lot of trouble getting, getting into baseball. So if you look at her resume, like I said before, it's, it's extremely impressive. Um, just like baseball is like any other industry where you have to have um, experience. Um, you got to have a, a quality resume. And Rachel definitely met all those qualifications. However, there was one thing that she didn't have. Um, and that's one thing that was held against her. She, she was a woman and it's simply, uh, simply put as that, uh, she was a woman. So one organization even told her that they weren't hire her because she was a woman. And that's unacceptable. Um, before her, the Yankees were kind of pioneers in terms of, uh, getting woman in, and into baseball, Kim Ng, who's now the Marlins GM, the only female GM in all baseball, only G- female GM in all baseball history. Um. She was a Yankee executive, and Jean Afterman, she's the Yankees' assistant GM. Um, they've both been in baseball for 20-plus years, and they definitely paved the road for, for Rachel to be where she has where she is now. Um, this hiring is a huge win for, for women, for equality, uh, but I, I feel like it's a black eye for, for baseball in terms of her process, uh, to be blatantly discriminatory against her just because of her gender um, I feel like it's unacceptable, and I feel like uh, baseball needs to do a, a much better job in terms of inclusi- uh, inclusivity. So, uh, being a girl dad, well, to wrap this up, you know, being a girl dad, um, I want my daughter to have the same opportunities as as I did playing sports growing up or doing whatever she wanted, or whatever she wants to do. And so, I want to thank Rachel for for being a uh, determined, relentless, and an intel- intelligent individual um, who was a trailblazer for women across the country. Uh, she's opened doors for, for my daughter, for other girls across the country to do what they want. Uh, and it's just a, another groundbreaking barrier. So uh, I want to thank Rachel for, for, for being that person.
4: Yeah, man, absolutely. I think that's a huge win for her, her personally, not just her, but for all of baseball, uh, the influence that she's had going from, you know, the Cardinals organization to the, um, Houston Astros organization working with the Latin American players uh, putting the effort in to learn Spanish to be able to communicate with them better being a strength and conditioning coach she, she's really like the total package in one person now she's an on the field you know on the field manager uh, so I think the future for her is very very bright and I don't think it just stops in what way I think she has probably the potential to be at the big league club in some capacity at some point in the future.
0: No, it's a good thing for her and good thing for for it's a good thing for everybody, good thing for baseball, good thing for for women in general. You can say could go on a limb for all every one of us say we're all we're all about inclusivity here that we want everyone to be part of part of this sport because we all love this sport. So the more that she can open doors for the next generation of those of not just women, but for anybody else who has tons of baseball knowledge is a great thing. And with that, um, one of the other big things that happened this week was on Thursday, the the owners presented their CBA proposal to the players. And for a quick rundown of what was given to them, the owners want a 14-team playoff system. They're looking for a lottery for the top three picks in the draft, so it's not just the team that tanks gets the number one pick. Ah, uh, they were looking at the elimination of the salary arbitration for the Super Two players. So, guys that didn't didn't join the big league club at um, you know right out of spring training, but they're not they're not part of the team later on, like June or July. They kind of, like they they kind of get brought up and stayed in that middle ground. Uh, they don't want they they usually kind of got pushed. I think believe they got pushed back. Uh, they their arbitration clock got got pushed back a little bit. So what they want to do is. Pay pay those guys based on a form, based on a formula system that they that they'll implement. In addition to the arbitration, uh, they want arbitration to stay the same for players of year three through five. So they're not looking to get rid of. Uh, they're not looking to adjust uh, players getting their in, their free to getting players to free agency before the sixth year of of service time. They're looking at putting an international draft implementing an inter, international draft. Uh, adding the universal DH, they're not. They didn't this time around. They didn't um, mention anything on a minimum salary. They're not really. They weren't really adding on to the luxury tax. Uh, they're n- definitely not talking about adjusting service time at all, and they weren't talking about revenue sharing one bit. So those are those are especially the revenue sharing and the adjustment of service time. The owners are not budging on that, and those are the two items that the players are really heavy on. Uh Enrique, you I know you had a couple of things you, I know you you were big onto the CBA as well as I was. What are your thoughts on what the owners presented to the players?
1: I feel that what the owners presented to the players is not good enough. Uh I side with the players on this. I feel like it doesn't move the needle. Um this is not a good starting point uh the owners need to step it up and give the players a better offer and um hopefully hopefully everything gets done soon um i agree <clears throat> with uh with the players wanting free agency to hit you know sooner you know dave talked before about guys like aaron judge who are hitting free agency in their 30s you know most of these guys won't really get a chance to get their big payday until you know their age 30 season because of how free agency is currently constructed and that's not good and um You know, I know Fishman talked earlier about international free agency. I feel like that could help. Although us as Yankee fans, we love getting the top international prospects. But, you know, as far as competitive balance and being fair, that could help too. And um, I mean, look, man, we're we're all pro player here in this podcast. You know, they make millions the owners are billionaires i get it you know both sides aren't lacking any dollars to say the least but you know they're the ones on the field they're the ones putting their butts on the line getting injured you know the owners could do a little more to help the players i feel like you know they they should concede a little more and help the players out a little more because without the players, the owners don't make any money. Let's be real. So I just hope that they come with something better. I hope both sides come to an agreement and I hope, you know, and I know we'll get into this later with Dave on our polls, but I hope this doesn't go into, you know, the latter parts of the season where we're missing a huge chunk of the season because both sides can't come to an agreement. hundred percent agree with you on that.
0: Dave, did you want to add on to what Enrique said?
4: Um, I, I just feel like this is like a bad divorce uh, being mediated between the owners and the players. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And us fans are the ones that are paying the ultimate price because two sides can't get along or come to an agreement on anything. Um I'm definitely on the player side with this. Uh, I definitely want to see them hit free agency in their mid-20s versus, you know, in their early 30s when practically half their prime is gone and done with. Um, One thing I definitely don't want to see is a 14-team playoff field. I think that is just way too much baseball. And I'm a huge baseball fan. That is way too much baseball. You're going to be playing baseball playoff games into November, uh, probably before Thanksgiving by the time it's all said and done. Um, as far as a competitive balance goes, look, I'm all for a competitive balance as long as, uh, you know, teams like the Pirates, the Royals, the Orioles, uh, the Marlins, for example, teams like that, that, you know, yeah, they're small market teams, but you know what, like they should be mandated to spend at least $100 million on payroll because you, these teams, like, like for instance, Kansas City Royals in 2015, They won the World Series with an $80 million payroll. In 2003, the Florida Marlins won the World Series with a $56 million payroll. So, yes, it can be done, but it's not fair to these these players that got to go to these cities and play for, you know, however much they're getting, probably not much. And then they're just organ donors to the bigger, badder teams that can just poach these players from – these organizations that don't like to spend money. And I just don't think that's right at all by any means. So I'm all for a competitive balance for, as far as the international signing goes and all that. But these teams that are collecting money from the luxury tax, from teams like the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Cubs getting penalized for going over the luxury cap, they shouldn't just be allowed to pocket the money and get away with it. They should be mandated to spend It should go into a separate fund that has to be spent on player personnel. I agree.
0: I agree with you on that one. I think that this, well, everything that the that the owners are doing right now, they're just. It's kind of. A, it's more towards antagonizing the players. That they're. It's kind of. They're just. They're kind of giving them. They they want to talk about the the peripheral vision. They don't want to talk about the the meat and potatoes of this of what's going on, which is service time, revenue sharing, um, luxury tax, and they're not. They're 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 attempting to a, to a to address the whole tanking situation, which will be, which they're going to look at in a very small version where the players want it as a big version of this. But obviously this is just the first, this was the first proposal that the owners presented to the players, players, according, especially if you listen to Whit Merrifield, he said that the players kept giving them different, different proposals. They kept on presenting the owners with different things. Owners wouldn't even respond, wouldn't respond. So this is their response. And players turned around and said okay we'll talk to you guys about this at a later date so I, I, I say buckle up guys because we're not this isn't going to start for a while and spring training is not starting on time so we'll be talking about how the owners and players can't get along for quite some time so uh, with that said Dave can you get, give the fans all the polls that we had out there this past week
4: alright So here we go. Polls of the day, polls of the week, however you want to envision this. But here we go. So one poll, MLB is preparing a new core economic proposal for the MLB Players Association. How likely do you think a deal gets done before spring training? Thirty two percent said likely. Sixty eight percent said not likely. Um, I like to be an optimist and look at the glass half full. Um, so I'm joining the likely camp. Uh, I'm not joining the Debbie Downers. I think this is going to drag out until God knows when. Hopefully it doesn't because our, our sanity would probably get tested at that point. Uh, which pitching prospect do you think will have a major impact on the 2022 pitching staff? Ken Waldechuk coming in at 13%. Hayden Wisniewski, 0%. He's not getting any love from the from the Twitter sphere. Uh, Luis Medina, 13%, and Luis Hill at 74%. Next one, uh, how do you feel about former prospect Manny Banuelos coming back to the Yankees? 30% say you like it, 14% say you don't like it, and 48% indifferent or just don't care. Um, I can see why people are just kind of like, meh about this. Uh, he was a highly touted international prospect at one point, had a lot of arm issues, boss around between Mexico and China, uh, as well as other major league clubs. So I'm hoping the best form maybe provide some AAA depth and try to regain some of his form that he had when he was part of the Killer Bs with Brackman and Batances. So we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> this one got a little goofy. Apparently Ken Mat- uh, Don Mattingly has a better mustache than Keith Hernandez, coming in at 100% to 0%. Having a little fun there with that one. I know Mark's excited about that who's the better first baseman 90% said Don Mattingly 10% said Keith Hernandez. <laughs> so apparently a lot of people are Don Mattingly fans and rightfully so. Should the Yankees get rid of their facial hair policy? Now this is going to be a very controversial subject amongst most of our list listeners. Uh, 82% said, get rid of it. 18% said keep it. Um, I'm at the point – I feel like this was a boss thing with uh, George Steinbrenner. I, I honestly think that this should be done away with. I think players should be allowed to show their personality um, and rock the beard. I mean, look at Garrett Cole when he had that awesome beard going in Houston. Uh, definitely think facial hair should be allowed in uh, in in Pinterest, but that's just me. Who would win a Strongman contest? 19% say Aaron Judge and 81% say Giancarlo Stanton. I'm going to have to vote for Judge on this one. I think he's definitely a little bit more of a solid horse than uh, Stanton um, for obvious reasons. But, uh, yeah, that's what happened with that one. According to Jeff Passon, the player's reaction to the owner's proposal earlier was a non-positive and we're nowhere closer to ending the lockout. When do you think both sides will come to an agreement? 0% said soon. 36% said a month before the season starts. 43% said into the season. And 21% are doom and gloom saying there won't be a season. Hopefully there is a season because I can't go through another year without baseball and watching the KBO and God knows what other form of baseball that's out there. Uh, next one was, what's your favorite Yankees jersey? 75% say the home pinstripes. 14% say the away grays. And 11% say the navy blues. I think we're missing missing one here. Uh, 2019 when they had the players week, they were playing the Dodgers out in L.A. Those black ones, man, were fire. I absolutely loved those alternate jerseys. I think they should keep the black ones, but that's just me. And that's it. That's all we have for the polls polls of the week. So I know we're a baseball podcast, and I feel like I wasn't not doing my job, really, uh, with the platform that we have to reach so many people. So with that being said, unfortunately, two weeks ago, a tragedy struck in my hometown of Warwick, Rhode Island. Um, My good friend, Dennis Malloy, and his wife, Janine Passaretti Malloy, unfortunately, were struck with the tragedy of losing their 17-year-old daughter uh, New Year's day in the wee hours of the morning the way. The story goes is an eyewitness account, um, witnessed a vehicle on I-95 South going towards East Greenwich through Warwick, targeted a car, a Nissan Altima, hit the car, spun it out down an embankment. Um, EMTs showed up on scene, found that the driver Olivia Passeretti. uh, unfortunately deceased at the scene. Later was uncovered that this individual that I am not even going to reveal his name, uh, posted on Facebook saying that he had a Benz and wanted to see if he could jack it up. And, uh, my friend and his wife, uh, got the phone call from the state police that she had died at the scene of the accident. Uh, this is a complete tragedy. I've known Dennis for basically my entire life through being involved with the martial arts world. Uh, I remember judging my first black belt division with him when i was 21 years old gave me a lot of good pointers even when i was competing he was always giving me pointers on how to improve and everything and so he's been one of my mentors along with my my instructor kevin o'donnell uh, from my entire adult life um that being said they're trying to upgrade the charges from accident with death resulting to a murder charge because it was discovered that he had made facebook posts going into this um that, you know, he wanted to see if he could mess his bends up. And then when everything was done and he let fled the scene of the accident, um, he posted again on Facebook with a check mark saying that the job was done. The girlfriend covered up for him. The state police raided the house, found him hiding underneath a bed in Charleston, Rhode Island. And he's been held at the ACI pending his trial. Um, so with that being said, uh, Dennis, Janine, our hearts go out to you. Um, during this difficult time. On top of that, we I want to take a moment to promote the GoFundMe page that's going to help the family deal with this going forward. Their legal battles are only starting. So if you want to contribute to the GoFundMe, it's, it's https colon backslash backslash gofund.me slash db950530. I'll also, we'll also copy the link and put in the show notes on the episode, so it's easier to find that way. And uh, this family could really appreciate uh, some love and support right now.
0: So, our hearts and hearts, prayers, and well wishes go out to the family. I know that it hit home especially for Dave. But uh, you know, if if anybody listening, if they could do anything for the for that family. Uh, I think they would be appreciative of it, especially Dave would be appreciative of it as well. And, not to, and unfortunately, to end off on a, on a somber note there, um, thank you everyone for listening. Please check us out on iTunes, Google, Spotify, anywhere else you get your your podcast on iTunes. Please give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. So for Danny, for Dave, Enrique, uh, Mark, thank you very much for listening to us. Have a great day, everyone.